So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to finish this study confronting clobber critics with the last uh, passage of scripture that is out of 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you have a uh, study sheet and a Bible, what you can do is turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at this uh, reference that's very similar to the passage that we looked at last Wednesday night. But there's some different angles here uh, that I'll point out uh, in regards to some additional wording that Paul puts into this passage that wasn't in the first Corinthians reference. So by way of uh, reminder, this is what we have looked at the past few weeks. We looked at Genesis 19, we looked at Leviticus 18, we looked at Romans 1, we looked last week at 1 Corinthians 6, and tonight we're going to take a look at this last passage. So these summaries um, kind of look back at what we have determined most likely the writer was trying to get at with these uh, particular references. Now, uh, I apologize. I had forgot to send out the study sheet yesterday like I normally do, uh, but I did send it out tonight after Esty reminded me that she didn't get one in her email. So uh, you can you can get, if you don't have that in front of you, you can get it after we're done here or whatever. And uh, this information that's on the slides is in that last study sheet. So when we come to this uh, last passage, there is a repetition of a word that we introduced last week in Greek as uh, arsenikoitai, and I said last week that this is a uh, word that's very hard to translate, and it might even be a word that Paul made up uh, because it's found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's not a word really that is found in other extra biblical literature, but it is the word that is translated homosexual in 1 Corinthians 6, as well as here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So when we come to this particular uh, word, we need to ask the question, is there similar things that are going on in the city of Ephesus, because that's where this particular book is addressed to Timothy, who is uh, the spiritual leader in Ephesus after Paul departed. Are similar things happening in Ephesus that were happening in Corinth? Now, last week we said in 1 Corinthians 6 that uh, Paul started that section when he was talking a little bit about how a man uh, was sleeping with his stepmother, and that led him into other avenues of, uh, of sexual uh, sins that were going on within the Corinthian congregation. Now, he doesn't do that here in First Timothy, but what he does do is he leads off in First Timothy with a concern about some false teachers. So I want to read this paragraph that leads into um, this verse we want to take a look at. So I want to begin at verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says here, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in emphasis, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So he begins by talking about a concern of some people that are teaching other things that uh, are not in concert with what he had been teaching in Ephesus when he went through that city on his third missionary journey. He continues, he says in verse six, some have departed from, uh, some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. 
We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So here he lists out some things that are akin to some very violent behavior, murdering. Uh, he talks a little bit about slave trading, and then he couches in these two ideas of the sexually immoral and homosexuals. So we have to ask the question, what's going on in Ephesus that prompts this? It seems to be something that is centered around um, some, some false doctrine that had been taught. Now, with the reuse of this word, arsenikoitai, uh, as he does in 1 Corinthians, we looked back last week and we said, that it's highly likely that what is being referred to in 1 Corinthians is uh, exploitive type behavior. And we said that something that was common in uh, the first century uh, was there was older men that took younger boys. So there was some pedophilia that was going on, as well as temple prostitution as, uh, as that was happening in some of the uh, different temples that people worshiped at. So the question becomes, is this the type of thing, excuse me, that is going on in Ephesus too? So scholars suggest that cultic prostitution was associated with uh, fertility rites, and it was a way of trying to get the gods to open the wombs of women as well as agriculturally provide rain that produces crops uh, and that type of thing. So with that as our question, I do think some things are going on in Ephesus that we need to learn about. So what I wanna do tonight is talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus. We're gonna look at a passage out of Acts chapter 19 that gives us a little bit of background. But before we get there, I do need to alert you to something that I think is important to understand. First and second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles, uh, as in a pastor written to a pastor to equip a pastor to do the work in the local churches there. So for Timothy, it was the city of Ephesus. And for Titus, it's on the island of Crete. They are very similar letters. Um, in 1 Timothy and in Titus, you have that long list of qualifications for elders and deacons. Um, and so there's an organizational element that's beginning to develop in the first century where these churches need leadership. Who are they going to look to for leadership? And uh, who are they going to put in place to uh, help the congregation. These letters uh, as pastoral epistles um, is primarily instruction to individuals, Titus and Timothy, as a way of social organization in the church. How is the church to be organized? Up to this point, there's not much given to us in the New Testament in regards to uh, how the church is going to be organized, how it's going to be led, uh, and what are the qualifications of those individuals that are going to lead these institutions. So the pastoral epistles, um, when you read through them, are very similar in content. However, they differ quite dramatically from the other writings of the Apostle Paul. So this has led some people to ask questions regarding the authorship of the pastoral epistles. And many scholars ask the question, is Paul the author 
of these three letters, or is his name being used as a source of credibility and authority uh, for these letters? So you can see here on the screen that um, although the letters bear Paul's name, you see it in verse 1 here in 1 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and, to, and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Even though there, his, he is named there, a lot of scholars suggest that the basic terminology that is used in these letters is very different when it's compared to like Romans, First and Second Corinthians, even the prison epistles, uh, you know, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, that type of thing. What is suggested is that these letters probably reflect a little bit later time period. And what they're suggesting is it's probably because there is a mention of false doctrine and uh, some empty speculations um, that it's more reflective of something that's, that is starting to develop at the beginning of the second century uh, and th there's this teaching that's going on and, and catching hold in the church uh, called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a real challenge uh, in the second century where there was an emphasis on knowledge versus practicality and that there were elite people that had special knowledge given to them by God. And that made them more important and put them on a higher level than the average uh, person that would be involved in the church. So you can see here the second big point here is uh, written likely within a decade of the year 100 CE or AD by an unknown author to an unknown audience. The pastoral letters stage a literary communication between uh, the legacy that Paul left behind after his death and these people that are struggling with this new heresy that has developed. Now, remember, we can't prove this, So, but this is speculation. And, and it is suggested that maybe some of the things that are being said here in this letter uh, is to try to govern the conduct of the church as it's being uh, inundated with other teaching by people who are claiming special knowledge. Uh, and the word gnosis in Greek means knowledge, and that's where we get the idea of Gnosticism. But um, so I don't know if that makes sense. It's nothing to wring your hands about, but it is something that is observed by those that know the language and know literary technique of Paul's letters earlier in his ministries uh, through his missionary journeys. The other thing is, we don't know where these three letters actually fit into the timeline. When you read the book of Acts, you're given the three missionary journeys of Paul, and then he is taken to Rome. He's imprisoned. He's released for a while, and that's the end of the book of Acts. Tradition says he is arrested a second time, and he is martyred. Uh, for his faith. So you have two imprisonments and then finally the martyrdom of Paul. The question becomes, where do these letters fit into that timeline? The other letters we can fit pretty nicely into the book of Acts. These don't fit there. So the question becomes, is this something that's reflective of later writings? So let me stop there and see if you have some questions because it does play into the discussion here of this particular chapter, as well as some references later in the book. Any thoughts, questions, comments there? Well, just the thought that he is talking about uh, the slave traders. He's against slave traders, but yet he is the one that doesn't have a problem with slavery. Yeah, and you wonder why? How does that that fit in? Yeah, the only thing of Paul regarding slavery is he's encouraging those who are 
uh, uh, masters who are slave owners to treat their slaves uh, compassionately. That's about the best we can get from Paul in his letters. Um, so, but if there are slaves, then there's got to be slave traders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's adjoined with the with homosexuals and sexual immorality too. So that's a great observation. So is it Paul that's writing this? If 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 this is contradicting his other writings, well, that's see, that's where these scholars are trying to to come to terms with some of those type of things. How do, how does it fit? Did he change his perspective later, or is it something that um, somebody else wrote some, somebody else is commenting on using his name? Yeah. So. Other questions? That's a great, great observation. Great question. All right, let's go ahead. So the other name that is mentioned here is Timothy. Um, we know Timothy from the book of Acts as one of the partners of Paul in his missionary journeys. In fact, uh, Paul was pretty ticked off at Timothy initially because on the first missionary journey, that he goes on, Timothy has a bout of culture shock, and um, he turns around and he goes home. And uh, when there is a suggestion later in the book of Acts to take Timothy again on a, another missionary journey, Paul hesitates on that because, well, he left me on the, uh, the prior journey. Uh, what is to say that he won't do it again? But what we find is somewhere along the line, they reconcile. And he becomes such a trustworthy companion of Paul that uh, if this letter is truly addressed to Timothy by Paul, and that's a legitimate option, you can see that he's entrusting a very important city uh, to his care, the city of Ephesus as we'll see in a moment, was a hub, a very huge cosmopolitan city, and it was the home of uh, the worship of Artemis, which uh, is has another name, uh, Diana. So here we find he is being addressed as an emissary of Paul, and he is trying to strengthen Timothy for the difficult task of leading this congregation in the city of Ephesus. And right out of the gate, Timothy's role here seems to be to instruct people not to listen to false teaching. And uh, as I just read, but rather the goal of his instruction is to put an emphasis on love rather than upon endless speculations and so and those type of things. So Again, one goes with the other. And what I mean by that, if this is written by Paul, then it then Timothy is the recipient. If it's written later, after 100 AD, then both the names, Paul and Timothy, are being used as a way of developing um, credibility in the eyes of other people. So it goes, one goes with the other. If it's early, it's Paul and Timothy. If it really is a, uh, a collection of much later letters, uh, Paul and Timothy uh, are just being used in name for literary purposes. I think most people within, um, within you know, evangelicalism, Catholicism, major Christian denominations would, would feel more comfortable, I'll put it that way, that this is really a letter of Paul, and this is really addressed to Timothy, and then the other letter is really addressed to Titus. But you just need to know that this is something that comes into discussion when, when there's a lot deeper dive into the material than what we do as people that go to church. These are scholars that know the language, study the language, compare the books, those type of things. Okay. 
nothing to lose sleep over. Just be aware that there's different traditions. All right, any questions? So then that brings up the question of false teachers. <laughs> who, you know, who's the author, who's the recipient, and who is who are these false teachers and what is their aim? Now, what we can piece together from first and second Timothy is there's elements of their teaching that comes out in the letter. So go over to chapter four of First Timothy for a second. Uh, and notice what the writer is saying here, it says in verse one of chapter four, now the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose conscience are seared. And then a couple of elements, they forbid marriage and they demand abstinence from food that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So a couple of elements here, you're not to get married. So it's kind of a monastic outlook and you're to keep the food laws of the Old Testament. So those things are already kind of laid out here later in the letter. However, when you go to the second letter of Timothy, uh, this is something that would be very dramatic in in their belief system. So in chapter two uh, of Second Timothy, it says down in verse um, eighteen, it says here they have departed from the truth. And here's what they're saying: saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the ruining the faith of some this is a, he's not talking about the resurrection of jesus he's talking about the resurrection of the body of those who have passed on and these teachers are saying that's already taken place where some people are getting upset because their loved one hasn't been resurrected does that make sense so um so these are some elements that are going on and there is an illusion, if you go back to 1 Timothy, and this will be the last uh, cross-reference within the book that I want to make tonight. When you come to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, it seems as though all of this is related to special knowledge. Verse 20, it says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. So all of this seems to suggest that there is some influence of this teaching called Gnosticism. If it is late in the first century, Paul recognizes it. It becomes much more prominent in the second century, and there is a lot of theological controversy and debate that's going on in the second century. Now, the law, the resurrection, uh, dietary laws are all Jewish identity markers. And uh, what you find is that one of the problems that Paul had on his missionary journeys is that there was a group of people that would follow him and they would come into the city after he had taught and they would say this whole thing about grace uh you cannot disregard the law you need you need to keep the law of moses as well and sometimes these people are called uh, nicknamed judaizers that are coming and paul will address them as a problem especially in the book of galatians but anyways so there's a whole range of stuff that's going on that's uh, found later in the first century on into the second century. So these false teachers are uh, somehow influencing the church. Now, what does that have to do with our primary verse? So you come back to chapter one. If you look at verse nine, 
it says here, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those then, and here comes the list, those who kill their fathers and mothers, who are murderers, who are sexually immoral, homosexuals, slave traders, liars, perjurers. And then he just says, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, you know, as if he, he says, if I haven't listed everything, then, you know, here, here's the kitchen sink. So the law is coming into play here with, with its spotlight on, on terrible behavior that wanders away from the goal of our instruction, which is love, which he says in verse five, and it's using special knowledge as a way of getting um, power, uh, as a way of getting uh, control over other people. Now, what's interesting here is there's a couple of additional words beside that one that was used in 1 Corinthians 6. So in verse 10, sexually immoral and slave traders. Now, that those are two additional concepts that's not in the 1 Corinthians passage. The two words that are used here in Greek are pornoi, uh, which was a, and you can see within the word itself, uh, it, it's closely akin to pornography, um, that idea. But it was actually a word that, is, that was used in the first century for male prostitutes, for male prostitutes. Then you have this word that they translate homosexual. Um, and then the second word that's not in 1 Corinthians 6 is translated here, slave traders. And it's this word you see on the screen, andropodistus, which means a person that captures other people, enslaves them, and it's the idea of selling them off as well. So with the triad here of these three words, there seems to be some type of malicious uh, um, control and, and the use of males for the purpose of temple worship, as in male prostitutes, or slave trade as a way of making money. So I actually think, this is my opinion, that this passage in 1 Timothy is very clear that it's not referring to two people who are in relationship with each other of the same gender. There's something very malicious that's going on here and the way it begins is they kill their fathers and mothers. <laughs> wow, they are murderers. So this is a lot of activity that has violence attached to it. So going back in our heads to the clobber passages, probably the roughest one out of all of them that we've looked at is not this one. It's probably the first Corinthians six one. However, what we find here, I think, is in close akin to 1 Corinthians 6 because of that made-up word that's found only in two places in the New Testament, here in 1 Timothy 1 and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Have some questions, thoughts, or can I clarify anything? Okay, now here's, here's my... Here's my take on this. I think all of this has to do with the temple that is found in the city of Ephesus uh, that worships Artemis. So what I want you to do is keep your thumb here in 1 Timothy. Go back to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. So the Apostle Paul, on his third missionary journey comes into the city of Ephesus, and it's there that he basically uh, starts a riot in the city because of um, because of what he's teaching. So if you're in, uh, in Acts chapter 19, 
um, we are introduced to this idea of of uh, Paul doing certain things in verse 11. Come down to verse 11. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face, face claws or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. And then it goes on and says uh, who some of these individuals are. So there's some powerful things that are going on through Paul's ministry here. Uh, and all of a sudden, the people in Ephesus are going to become afraid of his power and, and what God is doing through him. Come down to verse 17. It says, and here the city is named. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus. So these things were happening in the city of Ephesus. And uh, what we find is there are many people that were becoming believers. Take a look at 18, verse 18. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, that is, some of their um, their demonic practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So people were being grabbed by the message Paul was preaching, they're beginning to let go of their um, their practices in um, in false worship and so forth. But there, there's pushback on that. Take a look at verse 21. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, and here Timothy is named, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, Ephesus is in Asia Minor. And it says here in verse 23, about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. So that's what uh, uh, Christians were called initially, followers of the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin the very one all of Asia and the world worship. So what, what we find here is this temple of Artemis was an economic boom to Ephesus because of all the idols and tchotchkes and stuff that people would spend on this, as well as the money that was being poured into the temple. So if here's what it looks like here. You see the temple here. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. So it is, it's a majestic, um, it is a majestic building. There is a lot of complexity as to what in, was involved in the worship of Artemis. Well, let me go back to this other slide for a second. Let's move on here just for a moment to see how upset people were. When they had heard this, verse 28, 
They were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they all rushed together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were traveling as Paul's companions. So a riot begins to develop. If you jump down to um, the latter part of this chapter, you'll see kind of it, how it wraps up. Look to, at verse 36. Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and, and not do anything rash. So some reasoning is going on. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. So the reasoning was, let's not let this riot get out of control, that it destroys the city and des destroys the temple uh, and, and all the money that it produces. Let's take Paul and his associates, charge them in court and have a trial. Okay, so that is kind of an overview, and I just hit the highlights of it. What I want you to get out of this, though, is when you think uh, think the city of Ephesus, you must think of the worship of Artemis. And one of Artemis's, uh, the god, and here you can see a picture of Artemis. Artemis is, she is, uh, she is, uh, projected to have multiple breasts. You can see that. Let me, uh, so you can see it, Esty. So the image here is of multiple breasts because she is related to fertility. So their, their superstition is uh, that if Artemis is not worshipped, then fertility will be a problem and and so forth. So what what we have here in many respects is a, is the cult of Artemis is about a goddess who promises fertility for women as well as fertility agriculturally. What we find in verse 35 here is how they worshiped in verse uh, in chapter 19 of Acts, um, verse 35, it tells us why they worshipped Artemis because of what happened. It says, when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, people of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Researchers think that there was a small meteorite that uh, fell to the earth, and they thought of it as a god that descended from the heavens. They made uh, made this meteorite that fell from heaven into a god, and they worshipped it. And then they built on it, and they built the center of um, uh, of the worship of Artemis to be the city of Ephesus. So you can see here on this uh, slide, although the goddess was worshipped in 33 places in the known world at that time, the chief location and the temple was in Ephesus. Now that brought a lot of wealth as reflected in the criticism of Demetrius and the craftsmen and so forth. The other side of this is uh, Ephesus was known to be the place that was the world's largest banking system at that time. So all this money is coming in and, and it's related to keeping this temple going. Well, how do you do that? Well, this is kept going by some of the worship rites that are in the temple. And so people would come to worship Artemis from all over the world. And as they did so, they celebrated with kind of a carnival type spirit, music, dancing, singing, dramatic presentations, chanting allegiance to the goddess, as we saw here in Acts chapter 19. 
So she is the symbol of fertility. She is one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. And her promises of fertility, long life, sexual fulfillment, uh, protection during pregnancy, and childbirth. So there's a lot of sexual innuendo that's attached to the worship of Artemis. So when Paul, or the writer of 1 Timothy, either to Timothy or to somebody else that is carrying on the charge of being the pastor in the churches in Ephesus, this is a great battleground because all of this is going on. It's like trying to convert people uh, when Mardi Gras, uh, Mardi Gras is going on in New Orleans, okay? It's all this type of mentality that has a lot of sexual energy that is attached to it. Does that make, does that make sense so far? So how does that relate back to First Timothy? Well, if you're if all of this has a lot of sexual energy attached to it, then the provision of cultic prostitution was a huge element of it. And how do you get prostitutes? Uh, that's where the that's where uh, the sex trade uh, uh, slave industry develops. Look at this slide here for a second. The slave trade was a commercial activity in the first century. Um, and the most important thing to note is people that were taken as sex slaves to Ephesus as part of this ritual of worshiping Artemis, they had to have three things, strength, i.e. endurance, skills, uh, they were good at their trade, and beauty, strength, skill, and beauty. And the more they had of that, the greater value they were and the higher price they would yield when they were sold into uh, the slave uh, sex industry. So you say, well, how big of a deal was this? So archaeology has suggested that the city of Ephesus had about 250,000 people that lived in proximity of Ephesus. And they believed that um, a quarter of the population were slaves. So when you do the math uh, of approximately 250,000, and of course, that's a guess. We don't know that exactly. But 250,000 residents, that would mean about 60,000 of them were part of the uh, sexual slave industry at that time. Now, when you go back to this paragraph, hopefully this, oh, you go, oh my, this makes a lot of sense now. Come back to 1 Timothy 1, look at verse 9. No wonder the writer is really adamant about this. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. Well, yeah, but the law was given by to Moses for the entire people of Israel. But here this writer is zeroing in on it to say the best use of the law is to use it as a mirror to reflect the lawlessness and rebel rebellion. And then he talks about it being for the ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreverent. And then he lists what their activities are. So there's a beautiful young woman or a beautiful young man in uh, and some of these slave traders come in and um, what happens? Well, if they're going to take uh, some young men or young women and mom and dad are putting up a fight resisting it, well, they get killed. Do you see that here? Those who kill their fathers and mothers, murder. And then it lists sexually immoral homosexual slave traders and then all that goes along with it, lying, perjuring, different things to make the system work. So this is not something that describes the LGBTQ plus community at all. This is something very specific that's going on at a point in time that is quite, quite vile 
quite ugly, dangerous, uh, violent, all those type of things. So that, here's what I want you to think about for a moment. Here's a thought experiment. As we wind down in this study tonight, let's use our imagination for a moment. Imagine you are a married heterosexual person and imagine your life up to this point um, it, uh, altered in only one way, that instead of partnering with someone of the opposite sex, you had partnered with someone of the same sex. So here's an individual, you know, that they might be married, they might not be married, but they're sharing life experiences. All of your shared experiences are the same, whether it's a heterosexual union or a, a same-sex union. Uh, all of your loving moments are the same. All of your times of joy, hope, even suffering uh, are, you know, in every way the same, except for one thing. And that is two people the same gender versus two people of opposite gender. So the question becomes, how then would it be sinful rather than loving if the only variable in that whole life experience is that you're sharing these experiences with someone who shares your gender or sexual orientation rather than someone of the opposite gender? When you begin to frame it in those terms, you go, that's not what Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's nowhere close to that. Likewise, how are you actually violating what Jesus calls the greatest commandment? And that is to love someone else as yourself. So here's my thoughts on this First Timothy passage. It seems to be something that is found in a major cosmopolitan city. And we all know this. Think New York. Think Chicago, think Los Angeles, all these places that are huge, the underground activity of violence to produce money uh, is even greater than smaller type uh, cities. It's not that it's not there, it's just on a greater scale. So it seems to me the fact that What's being attached here with these two additional words uh, to that same word that's in 1 Corinthians 6, it seems to be specifically related to the city of Ephesus. Just like the Genesis 19 passage, Sodom and Gomorrah is specifically related to the violence that was taking place in that context, in that city. So when you think in those terms, you go, there is not much of a a base here uh, to really be coming down upon the LGBT community with such violence as we see within fundamentalism. It it, it makes no sense whatsoever because it's disregarding all context. So let me see what your thoughts are on that. Do you have any additional comments or questions or thoughts? Uh, regarding the first Timothy one passage. So we went out, we kind of ran a rabbit trail all the way around to bring it back. So you kind of know the context. That's what we did tonight. Any final thoughts? So here's what I want to do. Here's how I would summarize, summarize our study over the last six weeks. The issue about homosexuality is very complex, and there seems to be no text anywhere in the Bible that homosexuality is, um, is seen in light of what we know now today, uh, that is sexual orientation, and, and so it seems as though our ideas and understandings about sexuality have changed dramatically over the years because we know more, we discover more, we learn more.
but when we read the scriptures, we're stuck at a point in time where they didn't have that knowledge. And because they didn't have that knowledge, they often looked at things through a different lens. So when people don't have the same knowledge base on certain things, they don't they don't share the same experience. And because they don't share the same experience, they are afraid of uh, other experiences uh, that they're not familiar with. And that seems to me to be at the heart of what a lot of the problem is in our society. We're getting better at it, but as you can see by the violence directed against, um, um, you know, gay nightclubs and other things that the the hate and and stuff is still there so i mean it's it hasn't gone away completely but um the other thing i think to keep in mind when we talk about um same-sex marriage which is a whole new development in our own day and age that um that's not even on the radar in the bible um in fact marriage in terms of romantic love and wanting to share life together, wasn't really found in the Bible either. Um, marriage was mostly arranged. Uh, not much of it was economic in in terms of dowries and different things like that as well. So um, in some parts of the world, those ideas are still at play. So um if you watch uh, some different shows, like one of the shows that we watch on Sunday night is when people are dating someone from another part of the world, they're running into some of the cultural issues. And one of the the couples um, that love each other, the mother and father in India is still trying to uh, arrange uh, a marriage for their son, even though he's in love with an American woman. They're still trying to do a prearranged, you know, uh, marriage. That so that's still going on in our day as well. But um, but I mean that was kind of the main idea back then. So, do you have some thoughts there? Any comments or questions? So here's what I want to do. I want to stop the share here. We'll get get a little bit bit bigger picture of each other. Um, Paul, Paul and the biblical writers, um, are captured by a worldview that they are culturally entrenched in, and it couldn't be any other way. I mean, they live when they lived with the outlooks that they had, but. If you want to want something, if you don't have any other questions on this, I'll give you one tidbit, not to upset you, but it's really, it's really interesting that that Paul writes a lot about sexuality in different places, and the question is why. So um, this is not to upset you, but it's an interesting angle. So there is an author by the name of John Shelby Spong. He wrote a book called Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. And in it, one of the things that he does that's quite interesting is he suggests that the reason that the Apostle Paul writes so much about sexuality in his letters is because of his own struggle with it. And you, you remember the Romans 7 passage where he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I, you know, uh, should do, I don't do, that type of thing. Well, this scholar is suggesting that, that one of the areas of life that has such a strong hold on people is their sexual identity. And he is just throwing this out for consideration. He is suggesting that in Paul's cultural world, um, same-sex attraction is so looked down upon because it is something 
that you know is there's it's not even seen in light of um an orientation it's seen as something as an activity and so paul comes down hard on a lot of these type of things because uh of his own struggles so what uh john shelby spong he's a he's a bishop in the episcopalian uh tradition uh that he said i wonder i wonder if paul lived in constant fear of god's judgment upon his own life because this was an area of struggle for him. He says, we don't know if Paul ever married or not, and he suggests in 1 Corinthians not to get married. But if, you, if you're filled with passion, it's better to marry than to burn. You remember that passage out of 1 Corinthians. And he's suggesting that Maybe this might be Paul's thorn in the flesh. And one of the reasons that he pushes so bad, so hard on it is because of his own struggles with it. Um, he also suggests, which is an interesting angle, this is why Paul looks so negative upon women. Tell women to sit down and be quiet. Um, can't allow a woman to teach those type of things. Um, so it's, I, th I thought I've never ever thought of that angle. Was Paul plagued with sexual temptation, either heterosexual or homosexual himself? Was he plagued by guilt and shame? And of course, this would be a natural reaction as a Jewish scribe and scholar like he was to think that God was out to get him because he had these feelings. So just something to chew on. Um, I had never thought of that. Out of all the years of studying the scriptures, all the years of education, that was the first time this was ever proposed that I go, I've never looked at some of these passages in light of the fact that this might be an area that Paul himself struggled with. And that's why he's pushing back on it so hard. So you can do what you want with that, but I just thought, you know, it might be of interest that there, there are some thoughts that when you read some of his passages uh, in that light, that this is the area that uh, he really struggles with, that that's one of the reasons that the writings come out the way they do. So that's all I have for this study. Um, any any questions, comments, concerns? I was just, I was just thinking that uh, if homosexuality is such a big deal, how come Jesus never says anything about it? Right. If that was such a big deal. Yeah. And he even says if some of, uh, you know, recognizes that there's eunuchs mm -hmm. and there's, you know, and he doesn't condemn anything like that. Right. And he never addresses the subject. Yeah. But yet he talks about divorce because that has a way of hurting people. Especially the women of the first century. Right. And, and you know, so he's... He's not even concerned about that. Yeah. So if, if it's that important, why does he never, ever say anything about it? Yeah. It's a good point. Other thoughts that you have tonight as we close up this study? Well, I hope it's helpful to you. It will continue to be debated, I'm sure, until Jesus comes. But uh, it, But I think it's a very freeing thing to be able to see these five or six passages all have their kind of unique um, cultural context and circumstance. And to superimpose that upon a much later time is I don't think a fair way of assessing, um, you know, 
an outlook on a community of people as well as how these scriptures apply. So, all right. Well, we'll call it a night if you don't have anything else. And um, next week, what we're going to do is um, we're in a series on Sunday morning in the Gospel of Luke, and um, we're gonna we're gonna poke around some more in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I might just call this study "Lingering in Luke" for a few weeks, just to see some other things uh, that I don't have time on Sunday to point out. But um, so. At least through Easter, we'll hang out in, in the Gospel of Luke for a while, okay? All right. Well, I hope you have a good night, and we'll see you Sunday, okay? All right. Thanks. Good okay. night. Bye. Good night. Good night.